Greetings once again, or just greetings, and welcome back, or just welcome to From the Heart of Spurgeon, a podcast with me, Jeremy Walker, in which we're working our way through representative sermons from the collection that was published in the lifetime and afterwards of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a very gifted and grace-filled Victorian pastor, preacher and evangelist. This week, we're moving from the New Park Street Pulpit Volume 3 into the New Park Street Pulpit Volume 4. Uh, We're reading Sermons 164 through to 170. If you'd like to follow along day by day, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can go to the Media Gratii website and sign up to a regular newsletter where you'll see what's going on from week to week. And each week we select one particular sermon that we hope will be of particular usefulness or benefit, demonstrate something of the the range, but also the, the focused intent of Spurgeon's ministry. And this week it's Sermon 165. It happens to be the first sermon in the New Park Street Volume 4, and it's entitled The Warning Neglected, and it was preached on November the 29th in 1857. Spurgeon's text on this occasion is Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 5. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. Now Spurgeon here is in hunting mode and he is after souls. He is always after souls in some way or other, I think that's fair to say, but there's a a particular intentness and earnestness in this sermon, which he begins by saying that in politics, men are self-interested, always looking out for themselves, always wanting to know how things uh, take have an impact upon them. So whether it's finance or government or health or whatever it may be, we're concerned about ourselves. We want to know where it touches our lives. But in religion, we'd rather have abstraction and generality. We'd rather have the preacher keep far away from our personal case. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day became enraged when they knew he was talking about them. And our hearts haven't changed very much since then. But, says Spurgeon, and here's a good example of what it means to be a true pastor and preacher, this morning, by God's help, I shall labour to be personal, and whilst I pray for the rich assistance of the Divine Spirit, I will also ask one thing of each person here present. I would ask of every Christian that he would lift up a prayer to God, that the service may be blessed. And I ask of every other person that he will please to understand that I am preaching to him and at him, and if there be anything that is personal and pertinent to his own case, I beseech him as for life and death to let it have its full weight with him and not begin to think of his neighbour, to whom perhaps it may be even more pertinent, but whose business certainly does not concern him. Now, I don't know about the uh, place you are as you listen to this, but I can tell you now that uh, that is probably as objectionable today where I am and where I preach as it might have been in Spurgeon's day. Uh, People still love the abstraction and the generality and dislike it when preaching is pushed home into their hearts. Uh, One of the uh, classic lines of defence at that point is, you just do the preaching, you leave the Holy Spirit to apply it. 
What I like about Spurgeon here is that in independence on the Holy Spirit, praying for his rich assistant, he sets out to be personal. He wants everybody to understand that he's not preaching to the person next to him, but to the next to you, as it were, but preaching to each one who is there in front of him. And there's a there's a little bit of holy aggression, not just preaching to, but at you. I have business with you. And perhaps if we were as preachers a little more direct and as hearers, perhaps a little less hypersensitive, our preaching would do more good in the uh in the general uh, congregation and in some of our uh, private dealings. So the text is solemn. And remember that Spurgeon here is, is warning with regard to warnings. Someone heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not heed the warning. And the blood shall be upon him. He's going to be responsible for his neglect of the warning. His blood shall be upon him. He has three simple headings, that the warning was all that could be desired. Secondly, he's going to review the excuses for not attending to the startling warning and identify them as both frivolous and wicked. And thirdly, then, consider the consequences of inattention or neglect of the warning, which are terrible because then a man's blood must be upon his own head. First, then, he wants us to understand that the warning was all that could be desired. There was nothing lacking in it. And he tells us that the warnings of the ministry, which is how he's applying this, even in its basic understanding, the instruction of the word of God, calling to the lost, uh, setting Christ before them, seeking to uh, arouse the conscience, reminding people of the wrath to come, that these things have been clearly stated. The trumpet, which was the warning in the days of Ezekiel, was heard, would have been understood, was startling, uh, in the case of his hearers, would have been frequent and was timely. Now, what does Spurgeon have in mind here? Well, first of all, the warnings of the ministry have been heard. This is the person who has heard the sound of of the trumpet. And that in itself is a privilege because there are, he says, myriads of our fellow creatures who've never been warned by God's ambassadors. But that's not true of those to whom he now speaks. You have heard the gospel, he says. You wept under it. You loved the sound of it. You came again. You wept again. And many marveled that you did weep. But the greatest marvel was that having wept so well, you wiped away your tears so easily. So he's speaking, as he might to you and I, of those who've had the privilege of hearing the gospel trumpet, the, the warnings of judgment and wrath against those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And he says, not only was the trumpet heard, but understood. In the text, the trumpet was clearly a warning blast, and so it is with the preaching that Spurgeon has undertaken. He knows he's not perfect. A thousand faults your minister may have, but there is one fault from which he is entirely free, and that is he is free from all attempts to use fine language in the expression of his thoughts. Ye are all my witnesses that if there be a Saxon word or a homely phrase, a sentence that is rough and market-like that will tell you the truth, I always use that first. 
I can say solemnly, as in the sight of God, that I never went out of my pulpit except with a firm belief that whatever might have happened, I was perfectly understood. Now, uh, I think that's true. I actually think that maybe Spurgeon isn't always as uh, simple as he expects, or perhaps he, uh, despite the fact that the common people heard him gladly, uh, maybe they've got a wider vocabulary than uh, we might actually have anticipated. But uh, the, the fact is true. The, the sense of this, the reality of this is true. Spurgeon does not beat around the bush. He does not muck about in the pulpit. He is doing all that he can to ensure that what he says comes home and that no one is going to mistake what he wants them to understand. He has spoken plainly that except someone repents, they must perish. And except someone puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hope of salvation. So as the trumpet blast was clear in its, not just its sound, but its intent, so his preaching has been clear. And again, it was startling. It was, uh, it would break in on the attention. And so it was in some of the preaching that Spurgeon and others like him were undertaking. The preachers were laying iniquity bare before the faces of the hearers, and with rough language that was unmistakable, made us feel that there was a man there who told you all things that ever you did. Spurgeon didn't, again, avoid dealing with sin. He was quite ready to put his finger on wickedness, and sometimes very adeptly would move from group to group and say, in effect, now, you were you were laughing because I, I was identifying the person sitting next to you. Are you going to laugh now when I'm talking to you? There was a a respect, a veneration for a minister because someone was at least being honest with you. And perhaps someone might even think you would go and hear him again because at least your soul was moved and you were made to hear the truth. Yes, there was something that was striking, something that was startling, something that was very clear. And says Spurgeon, that that in itself is a, is a blessing and a privilege. But furthermore, the warning has been frequent. The watchman with the trumpet might have sounded it once or again. And the preacher has not ceased to sound his warning trumpet again and again. He has been heaping up sermons before the people. The trumpet has sounded in their ears a hundred times and they kept turning away again to sin, some of those to whom he speaks. And says Spurgeon, this is a madness. Oh, sirs, he asks, if a man had but once poured out his heart before you concerning your eternal interests... And if he had spoken to you earnestly, and you had rejected his message, then even then you would have been guilty. But what are you going to say if the shafts of the Almighty have been exhausted upon you? If, as it were, God has emptied his arrows in order to bring the word home to you, and you've gone on ignoring what the word of God says. He also wants them to understand that the warning has come in time, that it was not too late, that there was still hope, that there was still opportunity. It was uh, not uh, just after the event or, or a warning with hindsight. It was always there before them and they could always be, be able then to respond to it before they came past hope. 
And so he wants them to understand that in terms of the preaching of the word, calling after souls, praying for souls, weeping over souls, the warning is everything that a sinner could need. Perhaps it's worth pausing there and asking to what extent that's true of the ministry that we either have or that we hear. Is that what we are doing as preachers? Is that typical of the congregations to which we belong? Is the trumpet of warning sounded? Is it sounded in a way that is clear and distinct? Is it sounded in a way that is startling and striking? Is it sounded frequently and is it sounded in a timely fashion? Not at the at the 11th hour only, but all the time while there is still hope. That should be characteristic of gospel ministry, that it shouldn't uh, withhold even those painful truths and realities. But in fact, if we are to be faithful, those things need to be front and central. But Spurgeon's going to go even beyond that, and he's going to now begin to address the kind of excuses people make when they hear this kind of timely, frequent, earnest, appropriate and arousing ministry. And now he's going to start again, as he so often does, peeling back the layers of our hearts. He's a a student of mankind as well as a student of God's book. And so he says, what is it that people say when these warnings come? Well, says some, I didn't attend to the warning because I didn't believe there was any necessity for it. There was enough in reason, says Spurgeon, to have taught you that there was a hereafter. The book of God's revelation was plain enough to have taught it to you. And if you've rejected God's book and rejected the voice of reason and of conscience, your blood is on your own head. If you said it's pointless, it's unnecessary, it's vain, despite all that you know, then, says Spurgeon, I I can't answer for you. I gave you everything you needed, but you diverted it. Then someone else says, well, I didn't like the trumpet. I didn't like the gospel that was preached. So perhaps I, I accepted that it was something significant or important, but I didn't like what I heard. I didn't like certain doctrines in the Bible. I thought the minister preached too harsh doctrines sometimes. I didn't agree with the gospel. I thought it should have been altered. And says Spurgeon, well, you didn't like the trumpet, but it's God's trumpet. And inasmuch as you did not like what God made, that's an idle excuse. If the trumpet sounds a true warning, you may not like it, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't or couldn't attend the message. Someone else says, well, I didn't like the man that blew it. If you did not like the one messenger of God, there are many in this city, says Spurgeon. Couldn't you find one you did like? Perhaps you didn't like one man's manner. It was too theatrical and others was too doctrinal and others was too practical. But, says Spurgeon, if God has sent the men and told them to blow the trumpet and if they blow to the best of their ability, it's vain for you to reject their warnings just because they don't blow the way that you like. So he's talking about the people who pick faults in a minister. You're you're too harsh, you're you're too loud, you're too aggressive, you're too effeminate, you're uh, too doctrinal, you're too practical, you uh, you don't preach in the way that I like, you, uh, you, you look like your face looks like this, you're really some of the excuses that people make are so tragically petty. 
Uh, another says, I didn't like the man himself. I didn't like the minister. I didn't like the man that blew the trumpet. I had a personal dislike to him, and so I didn't take any notice of what the trumpet said. Spurgeon is is really building on that previous one. You're so busy, he says, with criticizing the minister and his style and his doctrine that your own soul perishes. Remember, you may get into hell by criticism, but you will never criticize your soul out of it. And and sadly, that's true for a lot of pastors. We we know what everybody doesn't like about us. And in fact, uh, most people have got a slightly different complaint uh, if they are in the spirit of complaining. And they've all got a reason why they're not going to listen to us. But, says Spurgeon, that's not the point. The point is, is it God's warning? Well, says somebody else, I was under the impression that the trumpet sound ought to be blown to everybody else, but not to me. You didn't think it applied to you. You didn't think it was relevant. You could see how perhaps this person or that person should have been paying attention. But but what about you? No, nothing to do with me. Or someone said, well, I, I didn't have time. I was too busy. So much to do. I couldn't attend to my soul's concerns. Time, says Spurgeon, for everything but your soul. Time for your business, time for your pleasure, time for your newspaper, time for a song, but no time to read your Bible, no time to pray, no time to attend to the truth. The problem isn't that you don't have time, it's you don't have a desire. You don't like it, because if you liked it, you would find time. And besides, he says, what time do you really need? Can't you pray to God over your book? Can't you snatch a text at your breakfast and think over it all day? Can't you go about your affairs in the world and still be thinking of your soul? It's it's a, a frivolous excuse, he says. It's it's not something that you really need to. Uh, it's not something you can really use to to excuse yourself. It's it doesn't carry any weight. There may be some time required for private devotion, for communion with Christ, but if you knew the benefits and the blessings of that, then you wouldn't feel that it was a an imposition on your time, but rather something you were delighted to pursue. Somebody else says, well, yeah, I'll give it time, but not now. I'll, I'm going to sow my wild oats and, and then I'll, I'll worry about my soul later in life. Well, the procrastinator, the the putter off, will always be putting off. And he'll go on putting off all through his life because it'll never be quite the right time, but the man never knows when his soul will be required of him. Men, he says, don't worry about these kinds of things where their bodily life is concerned, where it's a matter of their, their pleasure or their health or their strength or whatever it may be, we don't make these kinds of excuses. The wise man, the, the man or the woman who's starting to grasp the importance of his soul isn't going to turn aside the warnings of God's word and the offers of salvation with in such things as these. And now, says Spurgeon, I come most solemnly to conclude with all the power of earnestness The warning has been sufficient. The excuse for not attending it has been proved profane. What then is at stake? Your blood shall be upon your own head. And again, whether it's this this first question, are ministers serious about preaching directly to souls, preaching 
at people in order to win them to Christ? Are they uh, warning this clear, distinct, striking, urgent, earnest, repeated warning to flee from the wrath which is to come? Do we, do we have preachers who try and deal with the excuses that we and others might make who keep us from sidestepping, diverting, sloping our shoulders when the word of God is being preached so that we know that they mean us? Here's Spurgeon being very personal. He's, he's asking, is this the kind of excuse you make? And he wants you to understand this personal message means that if you don't pay attention, you are answerable for yourself. You shall perish, you shall perish certainly, and you shall perish without excuse. And he says, I can't describe because of the limitations of my mind and my tongue what it means to be eternally cast away from God. He reminds us no preacher was ever so loving as Christ, but no man ever spoke so horribly about hell. And yet, even when the Saviour had said his best and said his worst, he had not told us what are the horrors of a future state. He's saying that that Christ, even at his most graphic, nevertheless held back. And and he's he wants us to appreciate the horrors of hell. And the fact that we will face hell unless we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The torments of the body and the soul in the eternal fire must be faced. Here then is is Spurgeon and he's doing again what he said he has done and that is warn people of what they are facing. And he wants them to understand that they'll be responsible for that. And it's certain. There's no escape from these things. It's solemn reality. Death is the bourne, the stream from which no traveller returns, but it's not true that we know nothing of it. He says there's, there's enough that we know to be confident that this will happen and that if we die without Jesus Christ, there is no escape. There is no way out. There is not one solitary chance of ransom. Oh my God, he says, when I remember that I have today some here present who in all probability must be dead before next Sabbath, I must be earnest. Spurgeon does this a fair amount. He he breaks out in prayer to God as he's preaching. These men and women to whom he's preaching, the boys and girls who are in front of him, they understand that he's preaching as a dying man to dying men and never like to preach again, that he appreciates eternal reality, that he's conscious of the eye of God upon him, that he's aware of his responsibility with regard to this trumpet blast. And so he he wants them to understand that there can be no escape. This awful doom must rest upon those who reject the warning of God. And then it is inexcusable. The blood shall be upon that man's head. When a man is bankrupt, if he can say, well, it wasn't recklessness, it wasn't foolishness, it's it's been through someone else's dishonesty, then there's consolation. But oh, says Spurgeon, if you make bankrupts of your souls after you've been warned, then your own eternal bankruptcy shall lie at your own door. 
He says, if if this is your choice, if you're the despiser of the gospel, you're preparing fuel for your own bed of flames, you're hammering your own chain for your everlasting binding, and when damned, your mournful reflection will be this, I have damned myself, I have cast myself into this pit, I was the one who rejected the gospel. I was the one who despised the message. I have trodden underfoot the Son of Man. I would not listen to his rebukes. I despised his Sabbaths. I would not hear his exhortations. I am perishing by my own hand. I am a soul suicide. What a terrible prospect that not only will this judgment fall upon us, but this judgment falls upon us because of our own rejection of the warnings of the preaching of God's word and our despising of the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon's a profoundly compassionate preacher, and so he concludes with with a sweet reflection. He wants people to be aware that, yes, it's quite possible that someone might hear these things and just walk away and that there might be uh, these dry spots as it were these barren places where you think how could someone hear these things and yet reject and neglect them but he says where you're sitting today and he could say this perhaps in a way that others of us couldn't you're sitting in a place that's already been hallowed by conversion you're, you're not far from where somebody else has turned to Jesus Christ. And he prays then that wherever somebody is sitting this day, it might be solemnized by divine grace and a spot to be remembered in your future history by reason of the beginning of your blessedness, the dawn of your salvation. Now, Spurgeon knew where he was sitting when he was saved. Not everybody does and not everybody needs to, and that's fine and that's fair enough. But Spurgeon could take you to the place, and it's still there today, more or less, where uh, he was sitting when a preacher pointed at him and said, young man, you look miserable, you need to look to Jesus Christ and be saved. And he says, in effect, the same experience can be yours. Now, if you've listened all the way through this podcast, you yourself have heard the warning trumpet. You have heard the preaching of the gospel. You have heard of the judgment that falls upon those who turn their backs upon Jesus Christ. You have heard of the wrath and the judgment of God. You have heard that there is a way of escape. You have heard that if you will not heed that warning and turn to that saviour, then you will be responsible for your own damnation. And yet, where you're sitting today may be the place where you will forever remember that this is where God found you. This is where Christ saved you. This is where the Spirit blessed you. Perhaps you can remember that. Perhaps you remember where you received the the light of the gospel. Perhaps you remember where you began to understand some sweet and precious truth. Perhaps you remember where you first obtained the assurance of your salvation. Perhaps there are those hallowed spots where you prayed to God and you knew that you were you were blessed in some particular way. Well, let that be a reminder to us and an encouragement 
to us that whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and is baptized shall be saved. He who believes and is immersed shall be saved. He who believes not shall be damned. But wherever we are and wherever anybody else may be, when the trumpet of the gospel sounds, when the warning is issued, it brings a fearful responsibility. For if you neglect it at that moment, then your blood is upon your own head. But if you heed the warning, if you flee to Jesus Christ, if you ignore the excuses that you and others go on making, then you too may know the rich salvation of a saving God. And may that be the case for each one of us and for myriads besides. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.